Welcome to Arise, the Honest Man's Podcast. Real men arising to end the silence around us about the chains that bind us, to dispel the darkness of illusion with luminous spiritual technologies, to finally become the hero within us all. Welcome. With me is uh, Jai Jagannath, Premanana Kirtan, Yamuna Bihari, and Hari Vilas. And uh, yeah, once again, another <laughs> another just super real topic that I think um, is going to be very meaningful for a lot of people. And Jai Jagannath will will take us into it. Yeah, I really wanted to um, get into this topic in the context of our previous two discussions. The first being sexual addiction. And the second being sort of the shame and guilt around sexual addiction. Um, a large element of this problem in a young man's life, in my own personal meditations on it, and my vicarious observations of it, has a lot to do with the split between father and son. And specifically the split being one that a young man generally requires the presence of older mentorship, older male mentorship, to learn healthy and moral ways to integrate his energies and especially you would say his sexual energies. And because that responsibility in the post-industrial world has kind of been eschewed either consciously or unconsciously by the older men, the boys have been forced to learn these things largely from the cultural edifices of the age, which in our case means academy, which you really don't learn anything moral <laughs> in school, Hollywood, the music industry, and of course, post-technology, social media. And you end up getting sort of a Lord of the Fly situation where men are trying to govern, young men trying to govern and learn for themselves and end up in a situation of just self-destruction. And I think a lot of that largely happens due to the split between father and son. Um, either because the father is absent or because the father is maybe absentee, like he's there, but he's not there because he's mostly at work or because of abuse of a relationship with the father. Or there could be like a good man who just doesn't really know what he has to do to help that young man. enter there. So there could be many levels of this. But basically that split between father and son is what's leading to the problem of very destructive and unhealthy sexual addictions and the sort of debilitating shame and guilt around that. That's my starting point. Would you agree or disagree with that? Talking points. I mean, I think we're going to start there. I'm going to call on Harvey last first. Okay. Uh, if he's there, not sure is what's it frozen? My video. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, we, we can, can, we hear, can you. hear you. <laughs> You look like you're in a state of being stunned by devotion. I'm shocked by a wonderful introduction. So, yeah, I guess um, it's something me and you have spoken about quite a bit before. And uh, something that is quite apparent that, that somehow we get something. We're supposed to, as traditional society breaks down, we can see that it leaves certain gaps. And the gap that is left by a proper uh, fatherhood and education is definitely being filled by, by other things. So I definitely agree with what you're saying. And I think also it's um, 
we will only really see the result of that probably within the next 20 or 30 years as this new gen as it's as a generational gap increases it will become clear because uh, just like say if you have bad nutrition when you're a child you only see it you can only see it much later in life and it becomes very apparent but what you have you know it then then it really hits you so similarly um, i believe specifically with um, what you're supposed to gain from your father it's when you at a certain point have to become a father yourself it is at that point where uh, the deficiencies of what you have received then it will really hit you because then you won't be able to really give because you haven't received it you don't really know how it how to do it and um, so there's just one thought that came to mind as you were speaking Absolutely. For me, what the, the kind of question that also just comes up with this is that, you know, it, it, it seems like it's kind of, it's been quite a long time coming and I'm, I'm left questioning um, what, is actually, what is actually the origin in this uh, very widespread decline in healthy masculinity? How, how far can we actually trace this back? Um, and 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 where yeah where does it really come from and just as a final side note i of course naturally absolutely agree jai jagannath with how you opened it up for us thank you, you <laughs> <laughs> yeah so 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 the origin question is is a is a big one you know because because essentially taking it a little bit further um what does it what does it really what does it really mean to be exemplary like if if we had to boil it down to one thing and i would i would strongly assert that it is the capacity to take proper responsibility in in one's personal life because taking proper responsibility for oneself enables one to then uh, extend one's care and concern out to the family and from there to the community and there to the greater society. So perhaps as a, you know, as, as an essential thing, why has it become so much more difficult for men to take proper responsibility in these times? Mm. Very nice. Any other thoughts on that? Wow, Hari, Looks like he turned into a ghost. He looks like he's from the spiritual world. <laughs> the Torio position, the fourth dimension. Okay, well, if there aren't any further thoughts on that, I, I've noted these two questions. Um, I've noted two points from what I just heard that I would like to yeah. get to in the course of this conversation. But I think I would like to start off here that it's apparent, I think, in the larger societal mind and also in spiritual and religious communities, the extremely important role of a mother's love. A mother's love is always esteemed, always exalted. There are sayings like there's nothing like a mother's love. And yet when it comes to the father's love, I don't, I can't recall consciously ever hearing anything about it. Um, the, the father's position is sort of relegated to at best being a provide like a responsible provider mm -hmm. one who can support the family maybe in certain cases he lays down the law if necessary and these may be of course very traditional ways of thinking about it but this is like in my own mind is all i can think of when it comes to a father and yet his love 
and the role of his love, especially in the life of his son, is not something that I can consciously think of it being like necessarily appreciated or glorified. Even so far as to say, I've even heard things where like single motherhood is in some ways glorified um, consciously or un unconsciously, but the father's position is not considered as important. Or uh, so, what are your what are your th your thoughts about that? That anyone can say. I I have something, but but I I want to hear from from you, Mino, Graham. Like, do you guys do you guys have something? Because because you're I'm brilliant. So I'm brewing. Uh -huh. uh, these are very deep questions, and and I feel like I'm brewing right now. I'd love to hear if Premyanda Kirtan has something, but I, I want to loop back around to what you uh, posed to us as the first question, Karuna. I have some thoughts on that later. Right, right, right. Well, I, I, I can maybe if if Prem's still preparing himself, I um I I can also just just add that you know Jai, it's very interesting how single motherhood is glorified. But I think, you know, that's essentially because um, we're dealing with a very systemic issue here where, you know, even in a, in a, very, in a very natural biological sense, the mother is the primary caregiver because she's the one who, you know, nurses a baby from, from the point where, where it's born. So, so generally, ooh, the echo. <laughs> All right. <laughs> the echo has left the room. Um, you know, so she's the one who's taking that responsibility. And so then it's just kind of like etched into the society that the mother's love is most primary because her biological function is most kind of essential in those mm. in those first formative years. But but then I, I do feel, however, that if fathers um were biologically capable of providing the same level of essential care to their children, then it could very well be that single parenthood would be glorified and not just single motherhood, because single parenthood is what it's really about. You know, the, the, the capacity to take proper responsibility for another human being and, and to rear them in this world is, is just such an immense thing um, that it's really just about one person taking that responsibility. So if men were to do that, um, they they can and should be glorified just as much as as women are for for taking that up upon themselves. So you're saying because the, of the biological prominence and the, the mother son relationship, therefore that relationship becomes more glorified because there isn't an, an exact biological link in the father-son relationship, it becomes sidelined. Am I hearing that right? I think that's something that plays into it. I don't think that okay. that's, you know, that's it like in full, but, but it certainly plays a role. Okay. Other thoughts about this? Mother's love, yay. Father's love, what? Um, <clears throat> I, I'd love help fleshing out this thought, but... Um, it sort of came, uh, just came and it came to me now. Um, but of the facts that how the Gita sort of delineates how society becomes degraded, that over time the family traditions become lost when Dharma is lost. And from that, then unscrupulous men basically affect women and influence women in different ways and how the family unit becomes degraded. And so I was thinking as 
just like sort of as like linking to that bio biological characteristic of a woman, how if there's more and more single women taking care of, of, of children, that woman and, and the lunar energy, the female energy is more of the energy of the mind and the emotion. And male energy is more of fire, of solar, of knowledge. And how it's it sort of, for me, it linked to the, the problem of feelings over knowledge and how men, when, it, when the mind is more dominated by more of the female energy, more of the woman energy of the mind and emotions, more than staying in what's true and what's right, then what feels good is leaving the woman because it you know, disregards the responsibility that I have to take, the tapasya, the austerity of raising a child, uh, and I just follow the feelings more and more and more. And so I was just sort of trying to make that link a little bit. I don't know if that made so much sense, but how the family unit can decrease over time, then woman's role, just because of the biological necessity, it's gonna happen that the woman is gonna be predominantly the one, if there's gonna be just a single parent, then biologically it would make sense that the woman is the one because they're the nurturer of the child generally. And from that, then you get a more lunar, mental, emotional-based society, just speaking in generalizations, and from that, more feeling-based decisions. And it sort of just goes over time towards more of that. Does that make sense? It does to me. I think it could be, it's going to probably need to be fleshed out, but it does make sense to me. Any other thoughts about this? Mother's love. Yay! Father's yeah. love. I mean, Whatever. I... I would just, I mean, I can speak from my personal experience um, because I think it's, it's, you know, it's quite a subject that may vary, you know, in, in, in different contexts from what people have grown up to, to have had. But I can say that, you know, it, it, it takes a village to raise a child. And I, I believe that your, your relationship with your father may be altered by the other figures that are prominent in one's life during one's upbringing. And I can say that because I had two older brothers who were much older, let's say 10 years, 13 years older than me. And they, they provided a somewhat of a buffer for the experience I had with my father. And it allowed me to actually end up having a very healthy relationship, I would say, you know, um, when it coming to, understand, to understanding or respecting his authority. Um, and I actually, looking at it, I preferred the 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 awe and reverence growing up, you know, I could see that there was actually a very um, healthy thing, but, but we, we should know that the relationship with the father, as we were saying earlier, it, it is an evolutionary one that may change over time. Um, I think it's Mark, Mark Twain who says, you know, I, I come home after many years and found that my father is a lot wiser. I don't know if you've heard that saying, <laughs> but, but of, course, of course, I'm not expecting everyone to relate to that, but he, he's just saying that, you know, after having experienced life, he, he has more appreciation for his father. Of course, traditional, you know, maybe some time gone, there's different different situation. But from what I can say is that the, just the, those other male figures in one's life, which are in more intermediate um, period, like phases, you could say, uh, I feel could could help actually are actually necessary because I feel sometimes those who have had damaged relationships with the father as unfortunate as they may be, they also may be a lot of 
projection or expectation on that single person that might not have been possible. For example, if I look at the, the relationship of my oldest brother with my father, it was very different. And my, my middle brother once told me something I never, I never really understood until he said it. He said, my relationship with dad and yours is very, is very different. And he said, the way I see dad and the way you see him is very different. And I, I could understand that because my brothers never, I, um, my, my brothers never had them, you know, as much as I did. And I, I just feel like there is, there is a lot more to play than just single, even maybe just a single father um, in the midst of that role that, that, that may be played um, in, in a healthy child boy's life growing up. Mm. So if you're the first child, you're pretty much screwed. Better to be the third or fourth one down. <laughs> Any thoughts on this, Harvey? Yeah. Um, well, I was thinking how when I read this immediately, it's like uh, if you have to choose between air or water, then you would choose air because you know you can only survive a few minutes without air and you can survive a few days without water. But at the same time, both of them are quite essential. So I think that the mother's love in one sense is glorified more because it is the initial, it's a, it is the first relationship that you have. So you only develop a relationship with your father as you become actually conscious. But those, in, those first initial formative years, it's only your mother, it's, your, it's the only individual that is existing. She's giving you food, she's giving you everything basically. But then it's only as your ego develops, as you become more conscious, then the father's role becomes more prominent. So you will also see, for example, uh, even up until the age of five, the child is supposed to just be nurtured and nourished. But then when the child, Johnny Kapanen says, between five and 15, then, you should, then the child should be disciplined. And that, that next phase of life is indefinitely, that is the masculine influence that is to come in, and that's the father's role. So in one sense, mm -hmm. I think that it's just like a chronological sequence of events. Um, so... You cannot, technically, you can, I mean, you can survive without a father. In one sense, you can just have a mother and sort of make it. But um, we, we see for the full development of the individual that um, that masculine influence has to be there. And I don't, if, I, I think that if we would think about how we glorify the cow, you know, mother cow, but also father bull, you know, Dharma. And I think Vedic literatures actually, they glorify both simultaneously because um, even the principle of guru is actually in one sense, also, um, like the, the, the Vedas is like the mother, and uh, um, which is the mother and which is the father? The guru is the father, and the Vedas are like the mother. In any case, both yes. of them are required. Yes. Now, this actually I, leads to another. Okay, yeah, you can go, Ka. Yeah, yeah just, just, just one, more, one more quick point is that um, I, I was just reading an article a little earlier in which, in which the point was made that um, for, for, for an infant child, in in the first especially in the first two years of life their mother is practically their world like mother equals the world essentially and even just from even just from a or also from a uh, more modern psychological point of view uh, eric erickson who is known as the father of uh, developmental psychology um you know, he, he famous, famously formulated this model of the life phases that human beings go through. And what, what he theorized is that um, the, the first two years, and in every phase of life, what, there's, there's basically a challenge that has to be overcome. And 
the the challenge in the first two years of life is to establish trust versus mistrust. And if the mother uh, takes very, very, is very, very attentive and very loving and very caring uh, towards their infant child, then the child essentially learns that the world can be trusted because the mother equals their world, essentially, um, which, which lays a, a very, very, very important foundation. So, um, last that, that air and water uh, analogy is just, that was beautiful. Yeah, I want to pick up on that um, because it kind of leads to another question that I have. I've heard some nice arguments and points about the mother's love. And my question is that what are the limitations of that love? And Hari Vilas has already kind of indicated it, but I would like to flesh this out more, not only in terms of how we theorize about it, but maybe also in terms of our own lived experience. Um, what are the limitations of a mother's love? Now, the way Harvey Vilas has indicated this is in terms of once the child's ego develops, then that's when the father is supposed to kind of insert himself into the picture, so to speak, and to help him integrate his new energies with the discovery of his newfound ego. And it seems to me this, this is the area where the, the mother's love kind of, in a sense, has to, not like as a categorical imperative, but kind of has to recede into the background so that this new sort of birth, in a sense, can take place, but through the father. And that doesn't happen a lot in the modern contemporary times for obvious reasons. So I wanted to ask in terms of your own maybe reflections on it, but also in terms of your own experience, what are the limits of a mother's love where a father's love kind of is, is intended to pick up from, you know, if you have a good father. And I like to say the reason that we've invited the guests that we've invited here is that we were looking for someone with a good relationship with their father. We were looking for someone with not so good relationship with the father. And then there's me, no relationship with the father. So it's to get, I, we wanted to give sort of these different angles of vision. But this is my question. Where does a mother's love and your own reflections on it and maybe your own lived experience, where does a mother's love fall short where a father's love is intended if he's a responsible person to pick up? That's, that's the question. I love this question. And, uh, I, I definitely have something to say, but I, I do I do feel strongly that yeah I want everyone to 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 have a chance to respond to this because as Jai said, getting these different perspectives are going to be really enlightening. So uh, I'm talkative today, so I'm not going to continue being too talkative for the moment. Can we hear from someone else? <laughs> uh, I was just going to say that I feel like it's it's hard to begin accepting the fire required for character reformation or any change that we're developing as we're developing our identities. There's so many shifts and uncomfortable transitions to go through and to really step up to the level of integrity that's, you know, internally maybe asked of us or especially from our spiritual communities are asked of us if that hasn't happened prior because we've only got the nourishing sides of things from the mother's relationship. For instance, my mother basically supported me with anything that I wanted. Um, and I sort of challenge that sometimes now, like philosophically with my mom. I'm like, well, if I just wanted to do X, Y, and Z, like if I wanted to start eating meat again, or if I wanted to do this or that, you would just be like, oh, totally fine. Like I support you. And she was like, yeah, basically, like to a good extent, you know? <laughs> and I was like, you know, 
I think the male consciousness, like without the sort of guide rails, it can, you know, especially in like the teenage exploration phase, those guide rails need to be somewhat kept on, <laughs> you know, definitely kept on, or else the just nourishing sort of supportive side that's like building, you know, your sense of being cared for, being accepted, et cetera, from the mother, which is absolutely essential, which I definitely, you know, need so much in my childhood. Um, it, it becomes very challenging, especially, as you said, when the father is not like an exemplar, is not a hero and we need heroes to look up to. And so when those heroes aren't there, we look to everything else. Other guys that are our age, other men around us, especially on social media, they become the heroes and then we emulate that. And so then when the father tries to discipline you, if they're not um, you know, a man of like integrity, which is very rare and very difficult also, then you just see hypocrisy that my father says something like this and he doesn't follow it himself and he demands respect, but he's also, I see he's not respectful. And so then you're just like, well, you know, I don't need that either. Like he's not living it and I can't be expected to come to this standard that's being asked of me if I'm not seeing any examples of it anywhere around me. And so I think that that's where it begins to fall short and um, where men start to get into a lot of trouble in life is around those teenage years where, you know, that whatever you said, five to 15, where the discipline should come in. But then like from 15 onward is basically where independence is largely taking over and they're launching into the world. And so if that hasn't happened yet, then it can become, you know, quite destructive. So that's initial thoughts. Mm. Others, I have so many stories I want to share, but uh, <laughs> I, maybe I'll just start with this one. I'm sorry to interject. I'm always talkative. That's why I usually do the questions, ask the questions part because I talk too much. But I have to interject there. I remember when I was 10 years old, going to one of my first white friend's house. And I say that with clear consciousness because in elementary school, I didn't have any white friends. White people were the devil. Um, my mom was pretty kind of pro-black growing up. So white people weren't the best. I went to almost all white middle school. And so my first white friend, his name was Charlie. I'll never, I'll never forget him. I went over to his house for his birthday. I had just bought him the D2 Mighty Ducks video. And the only reason I remember that is because my brother was super upset about me that I got that video for my friend and not for him. I go over to his house, we're eating cake. And the father, he's, both his parents live in the house, which was something that was very new to me because the elementary school I went to was predominantly all black and a, mostly no one there had their father in the house. So that became kind of normal for me. So going to a person's house where the father would actually live with them was like a shocker. But his father was like absentee, like nowhere kind of around. And I remember at one point we were eating cake. All the friends were there. We ate our cake. We put our plates away and Charlie left his plate like on the table or something, a mess. So his mother politely asked him, can you please, can you please put it back, your, clean up your, your mess? And he just ignored her. And I was like, homie, that's not a good idea because <laughs> in the communities that I grew up in, first of all, you never ignored your mother because that meant certain possible death. <laughs> so um, he ignored her and I was like, okay, let's get out of the way. 
She didn't say anything. Finally, she asked him again, like five minutes later. And he was like, mom, will you shut the up? <laughs> and I remember when he said that, I was like, everyone run. <laughs> I was like, there's about to be a murder in the house, you know? Cause I'm thinking from my own experience, like if I even thought that I would be in the hospital, but this nigga actually saying something like that. And I remember his mom just like laughing it off and saying, oh, Charlie. And I was like, oh, Charlie. Oh, Charlie, whoop his ass. You know, like, I like wanted to see him chastised because I just thought that was just like, out of hand. Anyway, I tell that story in the context of like, I think in my case, cause I come from a single um, mom household and my mom was very much consciously playing like um, female and father role. And she used to let us know that, that she was playing like, she was the man in the house also. And so she manifested what we might call like male energy, especially in establishing authority in the house. Um, with in my friend Charlie's case, he had a father in the house, but at least in this instance, he turned out to not grow up so good. So I'm not gonna try to throw his business out in the street, but he turned out not being so good later on. But it just seemed to me that that was an area where the mom's love fell short. And there was, there was a need for more, using Jamuna's language, more like solar energy, establishing boundaries, et cetera. Of course, Jamuna was saying, when you don't see that example in the father, it, may, it becomes hard to integrate. But that's just an example of where a father's love is meant to help you to integrate your energies in a more healthy and moral way, and it didn't happen. And later on, this person ended up having a lot of really terrible problems um, in his life. So just anyway, I just wanted to throw that in there in terms of my question, a sort of example. I have my own personal examples also, but I'm waiting for that. So yeah. I think it's important to understand that we see it uh, on so many different analogies one can use. For example, if you're a writer, if you're into creativity, there's, there's two parts of the creative process. There's the creative process and then there's the critical process. So these two things, you speak to any writer, he will tell you. Sometimes you have to be a writer, so be creative. It's expanding, it's nourishing, it's going. And then you have to sometimes be critical, which is cutting and reducing. Um, even in Ayurveda, there's the two kinds of treatment. There's uh, treatment that is meant to nourish and treatment that is meant to reduce. And uh, so similarly, in the raising of a child, and these two things are opposed. You cannot do both of them together. So the, the mother's love is it's nourishing and it's growing, but it is also indulgent. Um, to a certain extent and then the thing with masculine energy uh, masculine uh, influence on a child that is actually demanding yeah? like it's demanding it is exacting and it is also limiting so it's the whole function of it and it's, it's completely different it's a completely it's a completely different energy um, that is supposed to be directed and it is we're not and it's true it, your mother's example is nice because it's not impossible you know, it's not like impossible for one person to do both but it sure as hell is difficult you know it's way more difficult it's way more simple if you can just be embodying that um, uh, just embody one of each and also makes it simpler for the child because then you know what you need. Because to a certain extent, uh, you need the mother's love to deal with the exacting nature of the father's influence. That's the whole point. Mm -hmm. It's like the father's influence is very heavy and it's sometimes it's, it's not so much fun. And then you can go to your mother. You can go to your mother and sort of get a little comfort. But at the same time, <laughs> that, 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 that other energy is there. I remember once I went on... Uh, we were, I had a little bit of a difficult time at traveling Sankatan. I was actually with Paramananda Kirtan and I wanted to bail. I wanted to bail out of Sankatan. 
And I was thinking, God, this is, you know, I hate this. And He's telling he me this story, Premananda. That's why I'm laughing already. <laughs> and then uh, Premananda Kirtan, he was, I was going to him for some, for some nourishment. I was thinking he's going to say something that makes me feel better. But then he just looked at me and he said, so what are you going to do? Are you going to run back to your mommy? Yeah, you said that, bro. I was, it's it's a formative infant. So the principle is that is, that was that was a solar. He gave me some solar love, you know. He gave me some, mm -hmm. which is not always fun. And I think that the problem is, is that, yeah, nowadays people see, oh, the father's influence. Yeah, but the fa it's not always fun, you know. It's like to be curbed or to be uh, restricted mm -hmm. is not actually mm -hmm. fun. But um, it, it's it's actually that's real difficult work to do. And also, like you know, Muna was mm -hmm. saying, the trick is the only way you can do that to be nourishing. You don't really have to have a lot of. In one sense, it's very simple. It's like a way more simpler role. But the problem is when you become exacting or demanding, you also incite envy. If, you, if your character is not firm, then you will incite anger and resentment that has to be curbed. So therefore, it's a masculine. Therefore, it's generally restricted to the father to do it because it's, it requires a little bit of more... Um, it's more of a violent kind of energy, to truth mm. be told. You know? mm. I, I'm I just, curious before... Hold on. Before we go on, I'm curious to hear... Harvey Lass, about your experience, your personal experience with these two polarities of energy, like growing up. Cause like you were mentioning, I've, I experienced both polarities in one person and it became very bewildering. Cause one moment, you know, you're going, you're getting like the more lunar indulgent side, the side that's nourishing. And then suddenly like a cut and it created a lot of bewilderment internally for that. Maybe I'm, I think you had a very good relationship in your home where there was two different persons playing these two different roles. So yeah. how was your experience with the, the sort of transition from dealing with that sort of nourishing energy versus the more exacting, demanding energy? Like what happened personally? Yeah, I, well, it's, exact, it's, exact, it's exactly that. It's like it was a, a full embodiment. I always got the same thing from, from each of them. So from, from, you know, from the mother, you just get unconditional understanding and acceptance and support like always it's like something on tap you know like it's just like this little like you know something on tap you can just go immediately if you want it and it's always the same ingredient that you get and uh, and then from the father it's interesting because the fathers uh, i think also a certain sense i mean i'm saying this in the right way but growing up i was i was there was a certain sense of fear not fear in the sense of like um, you know like terror but I knew that there are certain bound, like say I had a curfew coming in. I knew that my mother, it's like, if my father is there, my mother won't tell me, oh, why did you come after your curfew? It's like, but I knew that if I come home after a certain time, my father will be there and he will ask me, where, where were you? So there was, I was, and I was afraid of that. I was afraid of coming home five minutes late and then having to explain that. So, so it's like, yeah, you get these two very different things. And, when, and I remember actually when I had difficulty with, say if i had difficulty with the one difficulty from my father difficulty from seeing he thinking he was unreasonable or whatever then i wouldn't go to him to explain it i would go to my mother so she would help you then so in that sense the two is always uh, playing off one another and it i think it gives a great sense of security because then you know always where you stand with each of them um and also you know you, you know what you need in one sense and for what you need you can go to either one and I can imagine sometimes it must be, you know, a little bit sort of, uh, I think it puts a lot of pressure on one parent. I, I can imagine your mother that if you would go to her and then she would need to be very sensitive to know what exactly is it that you need now. Because if you're needing some, you know, motherly love and she gives you a little bit, a, a whooping, 
then uh, it becomes you know becomes a little tricky. So it becomes much you have to be much more expert as a parent actually if you do it all yourself versus the traditional system of of, of splitting up those roles becomes just way more easier on every single individual involved and the child's mm. um, of course what also has to be just one thing to understand that there's a big difference between terror and fear so um, a sense of healthy fear um, healthy fear means that you know exactly what you have to avoid to avoid being disciplined simple as that like very clear like I, you, have, you have a clear idea of what are the lines you have to function in and if you stay within those lines then everything is okay then there's a healthy sense of fear or awe and reverence, if you want to call it that. Um, and, but then the other side is when, 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 when it is arbitrary, then that fatherly, if, if when it gets disciplined in an arbitrary nature, then it becomes very unhealthy because then there's terror. Then you have a terror of, of, of that masculine figure because you don't know, you can just get slapped anytime, you can just get <laughs> reprimanded anytime. Um, so that's just also another thing that has to be pointed out with this kind of, um, ideal dynamics in one sense is that there's a certain it's not terror but it is just a, a healthy sense of respect that makes it possible to, to stick to very clear uh, clear boundaries of of behavior permanente kirtan you also seem to have grown up in a very nice household congratulations um i'm i would like to hear your answer to this question about the limitations of a mother's love where a father's love mm -hmm. is intended to pick up in terms of your own personal experience and yeah or also your reflections on it yeah yeah i i see i see where it's going um well, what i what i would introduce into this that is is quite contrasting and interesting for me because the relationship i had with my parents was relatively very good and and uh really fulfilling i think for both parties up until my first year of college when I met the happy Hare Krishnas. And um, I think that, that was the interesting point where the, the, you know, the pressure or the kind of the tension that, that, start, that, that the first time it ever really started in our relationships. And at that point, what I found interesting was that I had to then um, somewhat defy my my parents you know um because in one sense i i was now deeply um convinced and and kind of inspired by the spiritual path that was very different and foreign to them and the hardest thing about that was letting them down or hurting them um and and what, what was interesting was the the roles that they took in that journey and um i i can say that my my father was uh a little more resistant um whereas as you were saying uh, somebody was indicating earlier on with the previous mother the mother being she wasn't exactly supportive but she was interestingly curious and uh, happy to be a part of the journey where whereas my dad was like had, I, I remember this distinct conversation where i was trying to become a vegetarian and i was telling him that i'm, I'm not going to be eating eggs and then he told me my boy you will eat the egg you know <laughs> and I was like, I was like, I was like, Dad, Dad, I, I'm, I'm not gonna eat the egg, you know. And 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 the funny thing about eggs, the funny thing about eggs is that it's not as like, you know, the, the meat and the chicken and everything else is very explainable, but the menstrual cycle of a chicken doesn't really not gonna hit home to my dad, you know. So we had this real uh, difficult conversation that night, and um, I would say that, uh, I mean, I didn't eat the egg, just so you know. 
but uh, <laughs> but my 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 mother my, my mother obviously she she was she she wasn't um, going to take any sides in that conversation at that moment. But she definitely um, I definitely felt uh, as Hogilas was also saying a contrast, and and she was still unconditionally supportive, and and I and I feel like um, you know I, I certainly can say that. It could, I could have been doing anything um, in my life. Let's say it wasn't Krishna consciousness and it was something else. Um, I probably would have run into the same dynamic, um, you know, uh, where, where those two parties would have taken the, those roles. And I, I mean, I think the word limited is maybe not, not at, or just gives a, gives us a sense of being uh, a negative connotation. I just don't think it's the function maybe of the mother to be playing that role, you know, so so we wouldn't have to see it as limited. It's just a, a different kind of uh, love that that is maybe required in that context. And and one interesting thing that I can say about about my parents uh, in 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 that evolution of 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 becoming more serious in my spiritual life, there was a year, my, my second year, when I wanted to leave home and join the temple and leave my my studies and everything, and. Um, and that was a very difficult time. And then my, my, I told my dad that I just want to take a sabbatical, you know, and just kind of get some space. And then he said to me, you, you know, you can, you can, you'll finish this degree and then you will take as, you can take as many sabbaticals as you want. And, and like, I, I, uh, I wasn't going to run away from the, from home, which, which to the temple, which was like 20 minutes down the road. It wasn't quite the eight, the eighties. And I wasn't really ready for that, but I can say that having, you know, like, like, it was probably finishing the, the degree and, and, and following through with that, um, you know, living at my house and continuing, I think was actually the best thing that I could have done for my spiritual life and definitely for the relationship with my parents. And I am, I, I am kind of grateful for having had that, um, uh, that balance, honestly, even though, even at that time, you know, I mean, I had the strength to pursue my, my, my personal, um, you know, like path. Uh, but my, my parents had, you know, had their place amidst that. My mom was always supportive. In fact, she had almost consented to the idea of me leaving home. But my dad never let me. And, and I, I found that interesting, you know, just looking back at it now. Um, and, uh, but, but, but again, you know, now contrasting to, to where I am at this age and the relationship with my parents now, I must say that things are very different. And this is just something, as Harry Velas was saying, those phases of life of, of a child's growth things do change and the way I relate to them now, Krishna consciousness is almost out of the picture completely as a foreign difficult element where, and, and where now the, the responsibility from my side towards them uh, has, has ch changed significantly. And, and I just wanted to, to keep that in mind amidst this like ever growing relationship because, because that period between all those phases of life are, are something to be considered and especially in the older Years. Mm. <clears throat> Thank wow. you. Karuna, you have something on this before we move on? Yeah, I, I just um I just want to actually pretty much just piggyback and, and very uh very strongly emphasize the essential importance of the simultaneity of motherly and fatherly love. Because Jai, you know, you were you were saying a little earlier on that at a certain point in time perhaps you know, motherly affection uh, kind of recedes to make space for for the for the father that comes in to bring the discipline. But um, I do feel, also speaking very much from my personal experience, that 
um, having having those two energies at the same time, like like Hari Vilas experienced and like Premananda Kirtan experienced, we haven't actually heard from Yamuna yet, so I'd like to know what his experience was. But um, you know, like 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 you, Prabhu, has experienced it. It was it was certainly um, very good. Where whereas Whereas in, in my case, I had the situation where my parents got divorced when I was 18 months old. So, um, but, but then in the context of that situation, in the context of uh, growing up in a, in a broken, you know, with my family um, unit being fragmented, um, I, I kind of, I guess in many ways had it as well as I possibly could have because my parents very, very, very um, purposefully, intentionally agreed to work together to try and give me the best upbringing that they that they possibly could. Um, and you know, my mother, <laughs> I'm in my mother's home right now. You know, um, she's been she's been she's one of my best friends. I I could honestly say it like that. You know, and I was actually telling her the other day that. You know, if anyone, if anyone wants to like, if anyone wants to like tune me or criticize me for, you know, being in my mother's home in, in this particular time in my life, I'd just be like, you know, screw you, bro. She's one of my best friends. You know, what do you have to tell me about it? Um, but, uh, you know, and that presence has always been there and it's been very, it's just been, I would have been um, completely screwed if it wasn't for her and for bringing that energy into my life. Because what happened with with my father is because he is because my family unit split up. Um, he very much kind of tried to overcompensate for him not being for my parents not being together, and so he was just always uh, just really like totally extra. Um, you know, with with the best intentions, but um, that that energy of of you know trying to you know kind of very forcefully uh, trying to get me to to reach my full potential, as he liked to speak about it, became became really quite distasteful and actually suffocating, um, and I think that actually stunted me in many ways, um, but at the same time. You know, I'm still grateful for it because, in retrospect, it all um, came together in 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 some in some good way. But but yes, I I just and and that's something that I even now in my own uh, life prospectively really hanker for is to try to uh, create that experience for for my mm-hmm. own children of of really like having both of those energies at the same time having it simultaneously and also just as prem pointed out earlier just the essential importance of the village model because uh with with nuclear families in this current day and age um and maybe this is just like a very brief little tangent is that what happens is that the the male and female energy the the mother's and father's energy mm-hmm. it's like these nuclear families being so split up and just being completely disconnected from each other, like raising children is hella difficult. It's so taxing and it's actually, it's actually in many ways quite artificial for, for even for one parent, it's completely artificial, but for even for two, it's really difficult to, to fully bring it for your children. So, so just having 
more of a sense of community is is really um, of the essence. <clears throat> nice. I wanted to build on this a little bit, um, just in terms of that energy being really critical in terms of ego formation. The exact context of this conversation is again in relationship to sexual addiction and the guilt and shame surrounding it. So I'm very curious to understand this subject matter in terms of the relationship with the father being very useful or not at all present and helping one integrate their sort of sexual discovery or identity and relating to the world. Like in other words, you know, did you guys who grew up with good fathers or you have, did you have this conversation and how do you think that contributed to your healthy moral or not so healthy or moral <laughs> um, yeah integration of that energy in relationship to the world basically my theory is from the beginning of this conversation is that because of the split between father and son and i don't just mean that in terms of not having a father in the house like in my case but in terms of like the father doing his thing and letting social media teach his children or the father being at work so he doesn't have that much time to spend with his children so the child ends up being raised basically by all women either women at school and then there's a the mom in the house how that impacts his ego formation specifically when it comes to his sexual identity and how to integrate that energy in a healthy and moral way is that making sense I can definitely, I'll go last on this one. I didn't do my personal story in the last one. I'll go last on this one. But I can definitely, yeah, I can definitely see clearly how I was impacted by that division in the course of my life. So I would, um, I'm curious about this, especially from those of you who have mm -hmm. fathers in the house or whatever, some relationship. So, uh, okay, so just uh, the thing that you receive from your father, so... You know, from your parents, you receive many things. You receive both subtle, subtle and gross and gross inheritance, one could call it, you know. So a gross is very simple. It's money, it's uh, education, you know, all the things that they pay for you and they give you. So that's a, a big transfer. It's very clear. But then the subtle thing is, as I said, they, always, they also give you to a certain extent, certain, um, certain character traits, but these are things, there's also like goods, it's like resources, because they also received it, you know, they received from their parents a certain kind of education, certain ideas and the principles, and then they transfer that to the next generation. Um, so from your, from your mother, you get that sense of acceptance, you're okay, you're valuable, you know, all the kind of stuff that you need to be emotionally sort of, uh, you know, uh, nourished and supported and all these kind of things. But then from your father, as you said, the masculine energy, it is exacting, it is demanding, and it is also setting boundaries and limitations. Um, and in the initial formative years, it is, it is that's why from Johnny Capone says from 5 to 15, you have to treat your, you have to love your child with a stick, meaning, you know, it's about discipline. So you have to be very careful. Why is that? Because a child to a large part, a, a small child to a large part, brothers, is just like an animal, meaning that they cannot self-regulate. They just, you know, they will just run around, do this, this. They have no, they have no intelligence. The intelligence is not formed, so they cannot regulate themselves. They will just eat chocolate cake the whole damn day. They have no idea <laughs> that, you know, what's going to happen to your teeth or these things. So 
the parents function as the intelligence of the child. So specifically the father, he functions as that part of the intelligence that is meant to curb, to restrict, to control, and also to push that, that part of the psyche that is supposed to understand that, you know, I'm, sometimes I have to do stuff that I don't like to do. That is the archetypical of masculine energy. Because to work for money is that. Working for money means you do something that you don't really like to do, but you do it because you have to do it and people are depending on you. So that's, that's what you're supposed to receive. And therefore, in the ideal sense, when the child reaches 15, then what you do is you treat your child as a friend. Because at that point, if you have properly, if you have properly transferred that self-regulating intelligence to your child, then you can leave him alone and then you can just shake his hand and you can say, now you make your own decisions because now you're a grown up man and I've given you, I suppose they've given you the ability to self-regulate and now we can be friends. And that's what we also see in an ideal sense. Like now, if I think about my own relationship with my father, he's my friend. That's it. You know, he's, he doesn't tell me what to do. He does. He, he can give me guidance just like any one of my friends, but we have. He's probably, he's probably watching right now. He could be watching. <laughs> right now. Therefore, that's why I actually just wanted to put this in there, to plug it in there. Just in case. <laughs> so, uh, but we see that that's, and even the same thing happens with the spiritual master and the disciple. In the beginning, the spiritual master is supposed to, be, it's, it's a demanding and sometimes uncomfortable relationship. But at a certain point, the ideal of the relationship, I think it's, Rupa Goswami says it somewhere. See if we can find a quote. He says that the ideal relationship with the spiritual master is when, if the, if the relationship becomes fully mature, then you realize that the spiritual master is your dearest friend. Huh? He's not now the person that disciplines you or the person that pushes. No, he's your friend. He's actually, if, if one becomes fully realized as a disciple. So that's in one sense the, the transfer that's supposed to happen. And the question was then in terms of related to sexual energy, that's the same, sexual energy, financial problems, all this stuff, it's, it's, a, it's because the intelligence, you cannot self-regulate. All the issues in the world arise because people cannot self-regulate and then they go out of control. So the self-regulative uh, ability is what is, what, is, um, what is transferred from the masculine identity. So if you get that from your father, then you can deal with whatever the issues it is in life. And sexual, um, sexuality in the gross sense is, a, is that. And also further, um, you also get from your father a certain archetype for how you can deal with women. So, um, which is also then specifically in the relationship. So both sexual self-regulation and also um, the capacity to live up to the archetype of what is required to be a husband and a father. These are the two things that you get that you're supposed to inherit from, uh, from the previous generation. And that, that makes, and in the absence of that, then we can see there will be the potential for abusive relationships <clears throat> or for sexual self-control issues to be there or whatever. It's all can stem from that lack of that. So you feel that you got that I, awesome points, by the way, this gross and subtle inheritance is a very cool idea. So you feel that you got that in terms of like when I think about myself, I know this is one area where I was using the word limitation and praying point out this is probably not the best word. But I distinctly remember having grown up in only a single mother household that when it came to sexuality and sex, that was one area that even though my mom was super accepting, she was super talkative about this, even from a very young age, so that I wouldn't be totally bewildered about it. But still, I felt I couldn't go to her with all these new discoveries. It was impossible. Like, and she was my best friend. Like, there is no doubt about it. I used to often say publicly at the time, she was my best friend. I could talk to her about anything but this. And I noticed a very distinct sort of schism when it came to that realm. 
which was again then filled by the cultural edifices of the time. You know, internet was coming up and Hollywood and music and all that. I couldn't really go to her for those things. Did you have the same experience? Because you had a, a father with whom you had a good relation. Were you able to talk to him about these things? And how did that help you on a personal level integrate? Or this is just something that you got subtly just from seeing mm -hmm. him and then you were able to integrate? I never had any, I never had any like explicit Ex uh, conversations about these things. I guess you just learn it sort of in between. Mm. I, I, I think once he maybe just told me when I went to a so for a weekend away, he just sort of looked at me and he said, you know, just don't don't knock someone up. That was about the fact that only about as much as he spoke. But I mean, also we have to see. I guess, uh, yeah. I don't. I don't know. Maybe it's also different to different how explicitly these things are supposed to happen. Um, I'm not sure, but at least that. I guess the <laughs> Jamona says the best advice you can expect to go to you guys. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh <definitely>. my god. <laughs> Don't knock someone up. Yeah. All right. Um Jamuna, Prime, Kyle, what a same question. This is less theoretical, yeah. and I'm I'm just more curious as a person who didn't yeah. have this energy in, in life. Yeah, ab absolutely. Uh, I love that idea of the gross and subtle inheritances. I I think um, really what we're looking for, you know, from the mother is is nourishment, and especially of the mind to pacify the mind in times of distress and um, encouragement and all that. And then from the father having different things provided. And so my parents actually split just like Karuna's, I don't ever, I don't have a single memory of them together. And then unlike his, they were actually sort of factioned against each other with me in the middle. And so they're always just like, oh, you're a mother, you love your mother more, blah, blah, blah. And then, oh, you love your father and this and that. And there was just like all these, like, it was so confusing because they try to pit you against each other, you know, against the other. And <clears throat> I would say, from that, of course, frustration arose. And so I took shelter more of, of my mother because it was like the nourishment I needed in a time of conflict, even though I knew both of them really did, you know, care about me and on a deep level want to see me thrive. I know that for sure. Um, but it was a lot of conflict at the time. And so I would say that when it, come, when it came time to exploration around sexual energy, um, you know, because the closest with my mother, again, you don't really feel comfortable discussing these sort of topics with the mother as a man. Um, and then with the father, I would say that, you know, he definitely was focusing on the gross inheritance that I think most fathers, they want you to basically be a better version of them. Like a version <laughs> of them that didn't make so many mistakes and just was like upgraded a bit. But I didn't have the same ideals, nor did I necessarily find all of the ideals or lack thereof inspiring within my father, not to say that many parts of him were inspiring. Um, but that the gross inheritance was there, my needs were always met. But as far as a subtle inheritance, I didn't feel uh, like this person wanted to get to know me at all or care about what I like or, or not like. And then when it came to sexual energy, when I was exploring it, um, I felt quite uncomfortable, like the different things that you discussed last episode around guilt and shame and all these things, and then added that in with conflict with the family. And 
also I felt from his side that he was sort of encouraging my consciousness in a way that I felt uncomfortable with. Like he would point out like women, he would point out, oh, like, look at that lady or look at that like butt or look at those like, like whatever it is, like pointing to like women as like just purely objects. And his, you know, sort of philosophy was that uh, it's not cheating if you don't do anything, but that you can always like fantasize basically and like think of it. And for me, that was so like disturbing, even as a, like, as a youth, it was like, I felt something was very wrong with that to like, okay, on a gross level, I'm not cheating on my wife or my partner, but on a subtle level, I'm thinking about other women and enjoying their bodies. And so also on that side, I felt like a, a push towards uh, just enjoying and exploiting and that it was okay to just think about women in any way I wanted, even if I wanted to one day commit to one. Um, and so that was, you know, just a little brief look into, into that. And so definitely wasn't helpful. Definitely didn't seem like a source of shelter uh, as far as approaching these things. And um, then when it comes to brotherhood, everyone's basically on the same platform as far as addiction to pornography and nobody's seeing it as uh, problematic. So then you just go on with the guilt and shame for a while. And then ultimately coming to the spiritual path, you're asked to raise to a higher standard and the contrast becomes more intense. So then at some point that contrast, the fire of that contrast has to be, you know, guided by other men that actually have that tejas, that actually have that fire to be able to guide you through that sort of experience or else you just get the woman sort of nourishment, which is very nice, but you can't, you don't develop the tejas necessary to overcome these huge obstacles and you just feel guilt, shame, but at least my shame feels nourished and like feels like coddled. <laughs> You know, but you never get the tejas to really pierce through it, which nice. is mm. what I need, what I've needed mm. in my life for sure. Thank you. Prema, well, you're still a monk, yes? You're still doing the monk thing. He's a brahmachari, long time. I'm brahmachari. I know you, many of you know him from his wonderful keyboard playing and trumpet playing with Indra Swami's band. Um, so you have you already a little bit different. <laughs> he made it. He, he made it. He's a little bit different in terms of his predilection towards a more renounced life. Still, the same question I have for you in terms of your relationship with your father. And of course, you've mentioned you had the yeah. buffer with your brothers. How did that yeah. impact Yeah, your sort of sexual identity? Like, did you ever have yeah. conversations with your father about these things? Yes, yeah, it's, it's very, very interesting. Uh, I should also mention my dad is a priest. Yeah? He's a he's a Christian oh, minister. So he's a, he's, yeah. So he was always running the church um, throughout my whole life. I, I grew up in the church with my dad being the the Christian pastor and my mom just assisting him. He was like the, the TP, you know, <laughs> and the temple president. And um, there was distinctive moments, very few actually, that... Uh, you know, some 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 embarrassing exposure took place from my side in in front of him. What I can look back now and really respect is that he told me something interesting. He, when we when we were in dialogue with with a certain conversation, he says, "I'm not gonna." He said to me, "I'm not gonna um, 
snoop after you meaning like i'm not gonna try and uh you know chase you down it's your choice but i can promise you that you don't need those things uh, this is something he told me and um it, it left, left an interesting impression on me at that age we're talking about 14 maybe 13 14 and um wait 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 wait, wait, wait. slow down slow down so he like saw yeah. you doing something weird we'll just leave it at that yeah yeah and yeah. okay and then a magazine, gave a magazine I found, a magazine I found in my in my brother's room. If you want to be more specific, you don't have to be specific, but thank you for divulging. <laughs> yeah. So so he he told me that he wasn't gonna he wasn't gonna like try and you know make me feel bad about it, but he he assured me that I didn't I didn't need these things, and we didn't have too many conversations much more after that. I also got to be honest, I didn't expect that from my father. You know, I didn't, I wasn't looking to get validation for like the discovery of, of my hormones from him as much. Um, I, I, I certainly had brothers, you know, and, and like older brothers that, that, that were, I must say the two brothers were also very contrasting in my life. And um, I felt like, you know, I just felt I could say cared for to some extent. Um, I, I I would say, you know, I mean, I don't know what the entire Vedic view would be on this, but I could say that in, in one sense, you know, you know, not projecting or expecting too much on the father in regard to too many details does help, you know, in those in those years, because seeing having a sense of awe and reverence and, and, and almost like um, not too friendly too soon. Um, I feel does help because that 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 figure or or like that moment of I'm going to tell your father or if your father finds out I I feel creates such a healthy and strong uh, boundary in one's psychology um, personally and uh, so I, I definitely had that and but but at the same time I I feel like when you look at you know the ideal of what we strive for now when it coming coming to overcoming material desires and developing pure love of god i don't feel there's any culture in the world that can fully facilitate that whether or not that's the the fault of the parents you know so we it's it's hard to talk about a healthy um relationship with sexuality because you until you come to read the bhagavad gita and Srila Prabhupada's books do you really understand what that is and and is it can we really say that the world has a proper you know, grasp of that thing, uh, no matter how caring and committed and really well-intentioned many parents are. So I, I just find that, that that's a little difficult to, to, to say, but I, I can say coming from this Christian home, my dad kind of, you know, did, did, did proclaim that that marriage was a superior form, that commitment to one person was a, was, was a, a superior and successful life. And he showed that, I would say by, by example, it was a 40-year you know, marriage that never had any, you know, that ch challenges that I perceived as, you know, you know, not fulfilling and kind of left an impression on my mind that, that, that love is possible, that two people can make it work, that, you know, it's, it's, uh, if you put God in the center, especially, uh, that, that you can, you can really, you can really transcend these things. Now, ironically, I have taken to a more renounced path, but this is the, this is the funny part is that now I come home saying, Hey, look, dad, God is in the center, but you know it's not quite what they had instilled in me. But I, but I, but I can say that I, I did grow up, you know, with with those impressions. And even when it came to to like things that were more like taboo, um, as much as they could, my parents they they they, they tried, you know. But 
but I, I can I can still say that it's it's hard to expect um, people who don't have a grasp of like the, the Vedic view to understand how to manage the sexual energies in a really healthy way. Um, that's just one one concern that came up in this in this question. Uh, if that's okay for me to. Very to nice. I I want to get that. back to that. Um, I did I did note it. I'm gonna actually get back to that. Um, Karuna Avatar, you you may have something on this, also as do I. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll I'll just I'll just keep it brief. Like, my mom, my mom was never um she was never very comfortable to really uh to really enter into this realm of sexual subject matter. I I don't actually remember us ever having. Um, a explicit conversation about it um, what I can but I actually asked her this question the other day um, I think in in preparation for our first episode when we were discussing porn and I you know I I was just we were just talking about it and I and and then she she said to me um, you know I I will never forget how you once asked me what I thought about porn you know, that was when I was maybe like 12, 13 or something. And wow. um, I don't actually even... What a question. I don't... I don't well, yeah, I, do, I don't actually even... But the thing is, I don't really remember what she said to me because, um, yeah, it's just it's just always been, been difficult for her to discuss it. Um, whereas on, on the other hand, uh, well, let me just say that my dad um, spent the bulk of his 20s in the USA in the 70s. <laughs> Wow. So, um, mm. you know, and and he came out of that having just like an ultra ultra liberal um, take on sexuality, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's just say that he was um, he was very very uh, encouraging, uh, similar to Yumuna's experience, or you know maybe even you dad was a little bit more conservative my dad was just like you know never you can just let loose baba you know um but uh and i but and and i just want to say like i didn't completely take that to heart um because similar to Yamuna as well i there was also an intuitive part of even my my very young um, mind also just flooded with hormones that just that just intuitively felt that that boundless promiscuity just just can't possibly be a good idea, um, and so I was I guess I was kind of between those two influences I I was sort of just left to um, to figure it out for myself because um, as you know, we, we've also discussed George Feuerstein's book a little bit, uh, Sacred Sexuality. And as he points out, we find ourselves in the midst of a worldwide sexual malaise in the Western world. And the fact of the matter is that um, apart from from certain religious traditions that claim to have it figured out, you know, the secular world certainly doesn't have it figured out. So it's 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 also it also brings us to this point where we we almost can't really uh expect western parents in this day and age to be providing proper balanced 
guidance. Now, there may, of course, be exceptions, but I think that is that is the general rule. And then we, we, we come to, to understand the Vedic perspective, um, which is very, very clearly defined. And, and even that, you know, is, is hard to digest coming out of the kind of um, context that we come out of with just being completely oversexed. So, yeah, I, I would like to say explore that, that sometime in the future, because I would argue that it's not very clearly defined, mm -hmm. even in our own heads. Like, for example, I'll just give a very quick example. We hear that there, according to how high you're up in the social position of an ashram, there are different rules that apply to you. So if you're if you're outside of an ashram, you, very few rules apply to you. If you're a sudra, lesser rules. And if you're twice born, more rules. And you know, if you're a brahmana, you got the most rules. So how you engage with different aspects of life differ for different positions within the, the society, Vedically speaking. And bhakti tradition is mostly concerned with transcending, with transcendence, which includes transcendence of Vedic dharma and just a complete absorption in the Godhead and so on. So I would argue that it's not super clear to us what is the Vedic standard. For example, you know, if you're a shudra, when it comes to sexuality, sex, the rules are very lax. What to speak of if you're outside of Arnashram. Whereas because this is a Brahminical society, um, we are expected to tend to a more Brahminical standard surrounding that. Turns out that many members in the society, we ain't Brahminas. So then it becomes bewildering for us how it is we're supposed to engage in this. So it's, I would just say yeah. that's not super clear to us. And that would be a very interesting subject matter to talk about here on Arise. But I want to get back to a point that you just made and it, it kind of connects. You want to say something more? So, I, uh, Kai, maybe well, something more. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, I just want to very briefly conclude by saying that, um, <laughs> I mean, I don't think, I certainly didn't have it great with what my parents imparted to me about sexuality. It wasn't, yeah. And uh, I, I have, to some extent, already paid the price for that. But, you know, so, so yes, firstly. And then just secondly, you know, in terms of, I'm very, very, very keen for this conversation because um, in terms of the, the Vedic orthodoxy, or let us say, like, the orthodoxy of the bhakti tradition as delineated to us by Srila Prabhupada and as as mandated by his International Society of Krishna Consciousness, it's pretty damn clearly defined. And uh, you, you, you can't, like, if you, even, if you even suggest that there is a broader Vedic perspective on it, then you risk getting your head chopped off. You know, I was literally told that by one of my seniors. So, um, but I, that still doesn't mean that we, we're not going to get into it. We're going to get into no, it. No, we're going to get into that. <laughs> I want to just come back. Yeah. And this may be the, a finale, a sort of finale thought question here. But um, just coming back to something Premananda said, and you've also mentioned it, Kroon Avatar, that um, we can't be holding our parents to any sort of rigid standard of helping us become more integrated in a sort of dharmic way or a way that helps us to flourish because they didn't have that knowledge, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
I, I don't think we're having this podcast necessarily to say that, man, how come they couldn't be better parents when it came to this area? But one thing that seems pretty self-evident from everything that I've heard here from all of us is that we didn't have these conversations with our fathers, what to speak of our mothers. That didn't like really happen. We got found out and maybe something was said once or twice, but it wasn't like a conversation. And I think this this culture of sort of secrecy, in a sense, gets brought over to the spiritual community where this conversation isn't happening whatsoever. And people's lives are practically been destroyed because of the secrecy. I remember mm. this. Now, this is a little maybe I shouldn't even say this, but I'm going to say I'm not trying to embarrass anyone. But when I was in uh, I went to Radadesh Mellows. This was two years ago. So not this year, but the year before I was asked to give a class. And my class went really well, um, so well that I got a shout out from Sachinanda Maharaj in the Kirtan. It was felt really good about that. Um, because of that, a lot of devotees during the festival were coming up to me to appreciate the class and et cetera. Whenever the guys were coming up to me, because I was just starting to explore pornography and its impact on the brain and on in spiritual communities and so on, I was asking every guy I met if they watched porn. And almost point blank. And I would just do it. I would let the conversation build up and I'd be like, yeah, nice. They was like, your class was so good. I was like, yeah, thank you. Um, can I ask you a question? And they're like, yeah, yeah, you can ask me anything. I was like, yeah, um, you watch porn? <laughs> like somehow I would just bring it up. And I was asking a lot of older men, some obviously younger guys there. And you know, it's that awkward silence when you've been found out, you know, where you don't have enough time to recover. Uh, because you weren't <laughs> expecting Silent the question. Yes. So, <laughs> in my experience, I, this is at Radadesh, yeah, almost two years ago. So, I was like, okay, this is an issue in our community. And I remember having a lot of conversations at Radadesh Mellow at like the Prasadam table at one point. And I remember all these, we were having like a very, how do you say, an arduous conversation, me and a couple of young guys about this topic. And all these other older devotees started coming and sitting around. And they, and I remember one specific, very uh, much older devotee who had joined in the early 80s. He said, it's so invigorating to see younger devotees talking about these issues that have plagued our older generation, but in secrecy. So it's clear from our conversation and from, I think, personal and vicarious experience, this is like, when it comes to sexual energy and sexual, it's a thing that's not really talked about at all which also has its, it appears to me, negative impact. Um, so my question is this, then, in context of all of this, my question is this. Um, do you feel that there should be more, let me say it like this. We're going to become fathers, either of our biological children, or we're going to take the position of like a surrogate father. Usually for younger men, you become the leader of a, a community, you're, you're going to become a father in some way, shape, or form. And one thing that all young men, women too, but I'm talking from the context of men, will struggle with in this technology age is sexual energy. That's the eternal enemy of the soul, but it's specifically exploited to a profound degree in the age of technology. So if you have to have, do you think these conversations are important to have more of? And how might you have this conversation with your sons or your acolytes or disciples or whatever the position, how might you 
either introduce this conversation or engage with this conversation when the issue inevitably comes up in order to help persons become a more integrated, moral, healthy individual when dealing with this energy. Does that make sense? I didn't write mm. it down, so I'm, mm. but Absolutely. in other words, let me, let me say it first. Do you think this conversation needs to be happening? Because it's not, it didn't happen with us, clearly. It was something that was kind of glossed over. So yes or no, just you can give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Say, now, absolutely. We, we, have more, we have more Vedic knowledge, which our parents didn't have. So we have a way mm -hmm. of engaging the conversation in a way that's dharmic, so to speak, as opposed to the maybe a dharmic advice we would have got from our, I, I, I don't mean this in a pejorative way, mm -hmm. ignorant parents though. Okay, now you have proper knowledge. Are you going to stand in secrecy or will you, you know, be proactive, engage this conversation? And if so, what would you say in order to help persons become, yeah, more mm -hmm. integrated with this? I guess that's my question. This, this could briefly, be our final thing, but this, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just yes. briefly, like, this is my favorite question because, you know, also, that's one of the we have already recognized the need to have these con these kinds of conversations and that's actually almost the primary reason why we started this podcast is that we can figure out how to have these conversations and i think that we should revisit this question how would you have that conversation i'd love to know how we're all going to answer that question in one year from now you know after mm. like the experience that we'd gained um, engaging with these subject matters in such an authentic and, and open way uh, on a week-to-week -week mm. basis. So just like big ups for the question. And then just my answer is absolutely, you know, absolutely. It, 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 is, it is of the essence. And I do think that, you know, it's, it's almost, it's, it's self-evident, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the yes answer is, is self-evident. Um, because we're diseased, you know, we are diseased. Um, maybe I'm just saying we, and I'm including absolutely everyone to make myself feel better. I am diseased <laughs> and I don't want my, I don't want my children to be, and I look around me and I see so many young men who are, who are struggling uh, just like I am. And uh, the extent of the struggle is just not necessary. It's not necessary that we should be struggling this much. So yes, 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 yes. Premananda hmm. Kirtan, I'm curious to hear from you also because you're a leader, you're a monk also. Is this a conversation that you've had to gauge with other monks? Because I get a lot of brahmacharis messaging me nowadays. And I often wonder, yeah. why don't you just message your brahmachari leader? like? Why do you have to reach out to some stranger on the internet? Of course, a very charismatic stranger and a very yeah, nice yeah. one, but a stranger nonetheless. Yeah, Why do yeah. you have to reach all the way out over there when your Brahmacharya mm. leader is there who's practically engaged with your life on a daily basis? Mm. Are these conversations mm. you have had or you see the need to have more in the context of helping persons come to a more deeper mm. level of bhakti? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I really appreciate this um, this question, and I know because I've spent a lot of time with Karuna. I know he's very passionate about it, and I've observed that you're very vocal about it. 
Um, but I, I can, I can say because you've had the deep experience, you know, in 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 the society, and especially with you know having gone so deep into the process of um, Krishna consciousness, um, and and trying to make it practical and especially accessible for people in this world. I I can say I can say at face value yes yes I'm dealing with it yes I I think it's necessary but I I, I have observed and I will also say that there should be the backdrop of the the transformative experience of Krishna consciousness being um, being the cont or like the the direction uh, in which those conversations go and I and I can say that there is a tendency or um, there, there, there could be a danger in in how how we come together because essentially how we come together complaining or, or complaining is a hard word but confessing our material desires and end up fueling that realizing that it's everywhere and everyone's like this and this is such a thing and then all of a sudden minimizing the very thing that's going to help us overcome that and I think that the conservatives may be not opening up enough of you know view for for um, like speaking about these things and just placing that thing artificially in front but from my personal experience of dealing with this particular energy of seeing the solution with with others I feel like if you are going to be in a counseling situation or are you going to be helping your your son or whoever it be there should be a, a, a direction towards knowing that Shravanam Kirtanam Vishnu Smaranam or that hearing chanting and remembering Krishna is the the ultimate way in which this will be dealt with. Now, the interface and the way in which that, that you come to that point, I, I completely understand, will be um, different and maybe very individual. That's why, personally, I think there is sometimes um, a danger in publicly, you know, projecting it with, without considering how people may be perceiving that. Like, I, I, honest, I can respect the Honest Man's podcast, but it's coming from you guys who have had many years of experience in, in many fields and have a, a strong aptitude for both of these things, Krishna consciousness and psychology. And I feel like you're, you're in a qualified position to do that. But there are many people that come from it from a different point. They're not looking for the solutions. They just want to pull down out of the fact that they may not be um, coming to that point of transformation, either because they're not applying the process properly or their association is too overwhelming. So I feel like there are a few of those things to consider in how this issue is actually dealt with. And mm -hmm. for me, in my personal life, also because of my, you know, my ashram, my dharma, I choose to emphasize that, you know, as, as, a, as a personal life, um, you know, example. And, and when somebody comes to me, I'll always be, you know, having that be the predominant, you know, aspect of the conversation. But people who know me and especially the men that have those conversations with me, it, 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 I will be very broad in understanding where an individual needs to go to come to that point. But I can say, you know, when you're out in the street and you're chanting with somebody for the very first time, or if you're sharing that experience of Krishna consciousness, you know, in a healthy and progressive and regular way, these problems or these issues become just much more, you much become much more empowered and capable of dealing with them. And they don't become something that is impossible, you know, and, and I feel like when you have that right attitude due to uh, you know, having a good relationship with the process, I feel it's much more capable, you know, of, of dealing with this thing. So I just wanted to, you know, put a shout out there for the Krishna factor to know that, like, it really has a strong part to play in, in this uh, healing or, you know, transformative process. Mm.
Thank you. I have a lot to say on that. Jamuna, we want to hear from you. These are like final thoughts of sorts. Yeah, um, I think really what immediately came to mind was sort of the division between like a relative solution and a ultimate solution. And, um, you know, the relative meaning more on a biological side of things as far as the physical body and the urges it has. And um, even within Ayurveda, it says there's, you know, 14 physical urges. The physical urges should not be uh, suppressed, but the mental urges should be regulated and, and you know, looked at. Um, and then there's the ultimate sort of spiritual side of things, which is, of course, if one has great spiritual aspirations, um, then, of course, all the things that Premananda Prabhu said are extremely relevant. And as far as my personal experience speaking with devotees, I think it's an absolutely massive need, especially uh, with men predominantly, and um, even with, within many brahmachari ashrams across the country and across the world that I've you know, spoken to men that are parts of, they're like, we need this. Like, we really, really need this. And nobody's doing this sort of work. So I think absolutely some sort of, you know, these are, these are sort of like explorations that we're doing together right now. So we're kind of, you know, we have some material, but we're kind of exploring as we go and how right. to exactly do that. And we did it to some extent at Bhakti Center with, I think, quite good success, uh, you know, myself and Jai. Um, but I think how I would and, and how we addressed it was was sort of on the same page that there's relative sort of things that are more of like dharmic um, guidelines or dharmic goals that we can set around our health around our ability to, you know, have our offering to the world or generate income or whatever it may be. And then there's the ultimate solution of Krishna consciousness. And I love what Jai always uses, but that there's like a certain spectrum that we fall on of like very human and biological and physical to like very spiritual and realized. Where do we fall on that spectrum will determine the solution with which we must apply Right. And ultimately, the ultimate solution is going to be applicable for all of us. But the biological solution may need to be increased for some. For instance, within Ayurveda, um, there's many different solutions on, on how to decrease these sort of urges and how to prevent them from arising in the first place. Because uh, many things get played out as sexual urges, such as overeating, such as emotional eating, such as scrolling on our phones. It's a subtle way that the sexual energy gets put out into the world and also increased. And so looking at different ways to have just even a very sattvic lifestyle where the intake through the indriyas into the you know, kingdom of, of our bodies and of our minds, really looking at that and how to refresh it and how to reform it. And, and I think an important thing to say always with these is that none of us are like, crazy against sex or anything like that. And, but that the, the issue really that we're looking at is the uh, unhealthy ways that it plays out and especially with pornography with men. And so knowing that many of the times the emotional needs of nourishment are played out uh, with these unmet sexual energies or too high sexual energies into all areas of our life using the indriyas, using the senses. And um, so I think there's very simple ways um, that I'd love to, you know, 
contribute at another time with vital points of the body and, and nice. different things to reduce that. So that's what I'd say. As usual, I always go last, so I feel that all the good points get taken first. Um, anyway, <laughs> I, <laughs> I do, but I, I, I wanted to particularly just in my closing remarks here reflect on um, the sort of concern that Premananda Kirtan brought up, which is one that comes up often. And I just wanted to create some clarification about why we're doing this podcast and also even in our set sun group which we're calling a sexual sobriety and transmutation sangha. The emphasis is actually proactivity. Um, there are other groups surround, like SA groups, I think they call them, like NA groups, AA groups. So there's SA groups also, sexual, what do you call it? Sexaholic anonymous groups. And they kind of come together and they just kind of confess their sins of sorts. Um, Karuna Avatar has gone to a couple of these events. He said they're pretty depressing. The sound of that, just when I heard about it as a concept, sounded very depressing to me. Like, okay, I'm jacked up and so are you. Um, where is the uplifting factor here? But um, I do get the need for having a space to like honestly reveal one's heart and confess one's sins, the, the, the sort of the need to seek absolution. I get that absolutely. But our group itself wants to focus more on the proactive part of becoming the sort of person that we respect the, the proactive part of coming in contact with our inherent dignity, ultimately as eternal servants of God. That is the sort of general direction. And all the things that we try to do in the group personally is just to hold one another accountable to moving towards that inherent dignity, while also providing a space to share honestly about things that need to get off their chest in order so it doesn't weigh them down in guilt and shame and all that. Um, the reason for this podcast, actually, just for people out there who are listening to it, is that even with a group like that, Satsanga, where it's a group of persons who are dedicated to moving towards their inherent dignity and devotion to God and self-discovery, because of that problem that's attached to it and the name like sexual sobriety, people feel uncomfortable coming forward and, and engaging with that because it's almost like an admittance of guilt. And they're probably largely still surrounded by guilt and shame mm. that they don't want to engage with even a group like that, even if it would help them, because it's a little bit, well, that means, well, you know, you do it and someone's like, well, why are you joining that group? Are you dot, 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 and then the barrage of questions start coming. So the reason for doing the podcast actually was just to create a conversation where our stories and our stories are not unique to us. Our stories and voices are really the stories and voices of many persons in our communities also. Um, I'm, I live in the ashram for 13 years. I'm pretty, I'm largely conservative in my thinking about everything Christian conscious. If anyone knows me personally, they know how conservative my thinking can be. And my solution to everything is shrubbing them. I don't even, I don't even go, I don't even move up to the kirtan part. You hear from sadhus and your problems will be solved. The problem is either people aren't doing that sufficiently or they're doing it while simultaneously engaging with self-sabotaging principles in their life and they can't stop and they don't seek help. And in that way they perish. Mm -hmm. As a sidebar, I always notice that in the Rupa Upadeshamrita, Rupa Goswami mentions what destroys bhakti before he mentions what nourishes bhakti. 
And the sixth, Atyahara Prayashascha, you know, Shabhaktan Vinashati, Shabir Bhakti Vinashati. And I heard from a sadhu, the reason for this sequence of verses is to say that even if you're engaged with the positive, if you're also engaged with the negative, that's like, that's like taking the medicine but not following the proper diet. And so your progress would be largely stunted. And when you're talking about sannyasis getting caught with their hand in the cookie jar, brahmacharis, GBCs, temple presidents, and then, of course, you know, everyone else, householders of all kinds, just heard one terrible story last week. You realize, okay, somehow people are doing Shravan and Kirtanans going on, but something is remiss here in the community. And so having seen that, the inspiration comes to do a group like this, Satsang group, and the inspiration for doing a podcast like this is just to sh help people not feel alone if they're too afraid to step forward to engage with such a group. And the, in the occurrence of our first two episodes, I personally got a lot of messages expressing um, just profound appreciation that just hearing your, you guys' stories, first of all, I can hear my own story in those stories. And I don't feel so alone now. And you know, people are reaching out, wanting to have conversations and so on. So I just wanted to um, play K because this question, Premananda, that you specifically brought up, has come up in our first episode also. We're not trying to emphasize anything more than taking shelter of Krishna. Simultaneously, you do a lot of us are more human than we are bhakta right now. That is the personal observation and vicarious observation. A lot of us are more human than bhakta. And that human side ain't doing too good. And it's not doing too good in secrecy. And so it's degrading in a more rapid pace. So I see other religious communities, they kind of speak to that more human side in order to prop it up so that it becomes anukuyasa sankalpa, favorable for mm -hmm. moving, for nourishing and practicing your bhakti. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of the inspiration for this particular podcast and the particular group, just for those out there who are thinking like, we did get a criticism like, why are you guys even talking about this? That criticism came up in our first podcast. And I was like, well, because someone's <laughs> got to talk about it. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this, is yeah. a, this is a thing that our community is being plagued with. I mean, if you're top leaders in the community, of course, I'm speaking about ISKCON. I don't know about other communities, so I'm speaking about ISKCON here. Sanyasi gurus are getting caught with their hand in the cookie jar. Some of them struggling for over a decade in secrecy until they were busted. Then it's probably something that needs to be addressed, like in a more uh, something that needs to be opened up. Like, what do I, how do I need to take shelter? Bhakti stronger? What type of sadhu sangha do I need? And more importantly, what our group hopes to acknowledge: what do I need as a human being so that I I can um, favorably be engaged in my bhakti? Because the thing is, even if you are a creep. You can still do bhakti. That is the beauty of bhakti. You could be a nonsense number one and chant Hare Krishna, and you might actually get the goal of life if you just go on chanting. But my observation is that if we are creeps, in other words, if we are in Rajas, Rajas and Thomas like very strongly, then we're distracted from engagement with bhajan. So the bhajan part isn't happening because the Rajas and Thomas activities are happening more. So in this way, this is the sort of motivation for things like that. And the only reason for putting out in the public these sorts of conversations is just to 
kind of announce to the community that you're not alone. Like this is, although no one's talking about it, although you're in the temple room thinking you're the only one looking like a demon or living like a demon in secrecy, while all of the devotees are laughing and flourishing and saying Jai Prabhupada in front of the altar. And you just like, man, yeah. I just had a real bad night and I'm the only demon here. It's like, you're not a demon and you're not the only one struggling. It's just something our community has not learned to deal with in a healthy way that is favorable for our engagement in bhajan. So um, uh, my last statements here obviously have nothing to do with the question, but I did feel the need to bring this up because this critique is already coming to us. That this is, we're, we're exploring something that hasn't really been explored in the open forum before. And we're definitely open to suggestions, but definitely the feeling is there that as we become fathers in the future, either biological ones or surrogate fathers, for those who shall take shelter of, in us, um, this is an area of life that can't just be glossed over, especially as we live more private lives with our phones attached to us like another appendage of the body. So anyway, those are my final statements there. More to just an answer to why this podcast, why our group. And a great thank you to you all for the, I mean, we only were able to scratch the surface. There's so much more that could be brought out with this subject matter. Um, and I think we will have more similar topics around this one in the future episodes. But special thanks to Jamuna, special thanks to Premananda Kirtan. And we lost our Harvey Last. Very special thanks to him also. Of course, always Karuna Avatar. And I uh, special thanks to you also as well. He's our guy here, really the inspiration for a lot of this stuff. So thank you all very much. To be continued. <laughs> what a perfect what a what a perfect place to end it off. Like I'm so like I'm so my my appetite for further dialogue and and uh, delineation is certainly stirred. Well done, Jai. Thank you. Uh, people like when I rant, huh? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you could just do a mic drop after every rant, bro. It's so, mm -hmm. so on point. Thank you all for the encouragement. Until next yeah, video, thank you so much. Hadi, hadi. Bye.